Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Today, as we sometimes contemplate the real possibility of the end of the American experience, we think about its roughly 250-year history, often in the context of the people that have led us, good and bad, and gotten us to where we are today. So perhaps it might be instructive to look at the 500-year history of the Roman Empire, look at some of its leaders, and some who drove it to great heights, and others who might have been responsible for taking it over the proverbial cliff. We're going to talk about this with my guest, Barry Strauss. He's a professor of history and classics at Cornell University. He's a leading expert on ancient military history and has written and edited several books, including The Trojan War, The Spartacus War, The Masters of Command, and The Death of Caesar. And it is my pleasure to welcome Barry Strauss back to this program to talk about his latest 10 Caesars, Roman emperors from Augustus to Constantine. Barry Strauss, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. Tell us about the period of time that this covers, that these 10 leaders really cover in in the history of the Roman Republic. Well, you know, it begins with the end of the Roman Republic with Augustus, who emerges on the Roman stage right after the assassination of his great uncle Julius Caesar in 44 BC and goes on to become the first emperor. And it ends with Constantine, who dies in the year AD 330. He is, in a sense, the refounder of the empire because he refounds it as a Christian empire, previous emperors all being pagans. And he also um, founds what becomes the enduring eastern capital, Constantinople. So these are really two bookends of empire, I think. One of the things that becomes so clear in looking at this, and, and, and that's you know the contemporary aspect of it, is that, oh, yeah. ba- that bad leaders and good <laughs> leaders really do make a difference. Yeah, they really do. I mean, um, most of the emperors, to be honest, were not good leaders, and most of them are pretty forgettable, uh, which is why out of dozens and dozens of emperors, I chose 10. Um, and it takes, there's no school for leadership in Rome. It takes real qualities uh, to become a great, uh, to become a great emperor and a great leader. And you have to negotiate uh, very, very treacherous waters. Uh, they were great communicators. And um, great branders, they were knowledgeable about the empire. Uh, They were agile, and they were able to deal with both domestic issues and military issues. They had a real sense of who their constituencies were. The Roman government was always a military monarchy, and they knew that they had to pay soldiers. But they also knew that they had to pay attention to the civilians as well. Um, they paid a lot of attention to women. That may seem surprising, but in fact, were uh, very powerful, and uh, they could rally an important constituency within the empire. Um, and they knew how to balance carrots and sticks. I mean, one of the keys to being a good emperor was to make the, make your enemies in the beginning. You know, to fire the people you needed to fire. And sadly, in in the rough days of Rome, that often meant killing the people you had to execute. (laughs) But then turning around and becoming a kinder, gentler leader, that was part of the equation as well. One of the things you talk about is is the powerful influence that women had, uh, often, you know, and mostly behind the scenes, but nonetheless a powerful influence. Absolutely. 
um, you know, beginning with Augustus, who marries Livia. He marries up when he marries Livia. He only has one foot in the Roman aristocracy, but she is a pure blue blood, and she becomes his real partner uh, in ruling. He consults her just as he does his his other advisors, gives her enormous wealth and power. She becomes a kind of a propaganda leader uh, as well, and uh, she becomes the mother of the next emperor, who is not Augustus's son, but his stepson, because she doesn't have any birth children by, by Augustus, and that's the emperor Tiberius. And she's just the first in a long line of, of powerful women. Trajan's wife, Plotina, uh, is another one. She, in effect, chooses Trajan's successor against his will, Hadrian, who is her favorite, and she arranges for him to get the throne. She is herself a student of Greek philosophy and a wealthy woman who makes money in the construction business at the time of the, time of the building boom in Rome. And ironically, the, the foreman of her, uh, her brickworks is a woman, um, which is also quite remarkable. And finally, Constantine's mother, Helena, uh, now uh, a saint of of the church. Helena is a, a huge influence on Constantine, and, and he gives her a tremendously important portfolio to rebrand what is then Roman Palestine and to make it into the Christian Holy Land. So she has a big impact on history. Tell us a little bit about military conflict and the role warlike behavior played for some of these emperors. Yeah. So you know, we always think of the Romans as conquerors, and they were in general. But the interesting thing about the emperors is they knew when not to conquer. They realized that by the time the empire began, Rome had already conquered most of the places that were worth conquering. And also that further conquest would be immensely expensive and politically destabilizing because successful conquering generals uh, represented a potential threat to the emperor as he stayed in Rome. So most of the emperors, beginning with the second one, Tiberius, are committed to not expanding the empire and spending the money on domestic needs instead. But you get the rare emperors like Trajan who do expand, or under Claudius, there's the conquest of Britain. Trajan conquers Dacia, modern Romania, adds that to the empire. If you wonder why people in Romania speak a Latin-based language, it's because of the, this conquest by the Romans. He also attempts to conquer Iraq, and not for the last time. He fails to do so, even though it looks like he's won it in the beginning. Um, there are some other emperors who attempt to expand, but most of them are rather standing behind borders. The most famous symbol of this is Hadrian's Wall, which is the symbol of the emperor who, thought, who said, look, we need a strong army but we need to stand behind defensible frontiers rather than trying to do the impossible and expand. To what extent do we see reaction and kind of counter-reaction that we see emperors that, that were more militaristic followed by those that, that were more peaceful and vice versa and it, in domestic affairs as well? To what extent is there this balance that goes back and forth as we see in, in the Western world today? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's absolutely a, a key thing in Rome. So uh, Trajan and Hadrian is a classic example. So Trajan comes in, he's a military man, he wants to be a conqueror, his success in Romania, and a total failure in Iraq, and he is followed by his distant cousin Hadrian. 
He didn't want Hadrian to follow him on the throne because he knew that Hadrian was a dove uh, and that Hadrian had no interest in expanding the empire. Hadrian comes into power. The first thing he does is he kills, he executes four prominent Romans who are supporters of Trajan's um, expansionary aggressive policy. It's not the new policy said. New policy is defensive. And he devotes much of his reign to traveling around the empire, to visiting army bases on the frontier, to improving morale, and to supporting uh, these defensive systems. Hadrian's Wall in Britain, uh, a less visible wall in Germany. It was a wooden palisade, so um, it, it does leave archaeological remains, but they're much less uh, interesting to visit than, than Hadrian's Wall in Britain. So there is that back and forth between the two of them. There's also interesting attitudes, again, with a contemporary sense, interesting attitudes about immigration and other people coming in. Absolutely. To me, one of the most fascinating and timely things about the Roman Empire is the degree to which it's a study in a multi-ethnic, multicultural, to some extent multiracial, diverse society, and the strains and tensions and creative excitement that it created. The emperors were always supporters and advocates of immigration and incorporating new people into uh, the empire and giving them positions of power in Roman society. By the same token, there was an old guard, an elite, that sneered and looked down and feared the newcomers. Rome at its height in, in the second century BC was only partly a Roman city. It was also probably the largest Greek-speaking city in the world. Uh, it had a huge population of Celts, Egyptians, Jews, Arabs, Germans. There'd be visitors from India. Um, it was just a remarkable, um, variegated, d diverse place. And I think it's one of the reasons for the success of the Romans is that they were open to new talent. And talk about the Roman Senate and how that responded to the various kinds of leaders that came along. So the Senate um, was never thrilled about having an emperor. Uh, the Senate looked back to the glory days of the Republic when the Senate really um, held the balance of power in the Roman state. They had to make do with the emperor. Most of them grudgingly accepted him, but there were some emperors who uh, had a lot of tension with the Senate. So Tiberius, Augustus' successor, classic example of the guy who follows the founder and never can seem to live up to the founder. Uh, there was a lot of senatorial grumbling uh, about him. Uh, and ultimately, uh, uh, he, he said that he said about, went to a Senate meeting once and he left snarling and saying, they're not fit for freedom. And he had some of them put to death. It got extremely, extremely ugly. Uh, there were other emperors as well. And Augustus, when he was rising to power, killed a lot of senators. Uh, others as well, so Septimius Severus, another emperor uh, later on who came to power in a civil war, put some senators to death. Uh, the Senate is always a potential source of rebellion. And the emperors have an uneasy relationship with it. But in the end, most senators accept the fact that Rome's going to be a monarchy and it's not going to change. And to what extent did that balance and that tension between the Senate and whoever the emperors were, to what extent did that 
help the republic over time, or or was it not helpful? <laughs> you know, it's a great question, and I think it was fundamentally helpful. It prevented the it kept the emperors, as it were, from getting lazy. It kept them on their toes. Uh, it also was a way of mobilizing the support of leading men around the empire. So originally, the Senate's going to be made up mostly of members of the old Roman nobility. And then it opens up to leading men around Italy and increasingly to leading men from around the empire. So the Senate is a collection of talent. It's a sounding board. It's a way for the emperors to get their message out. And, you know, Rome is not a democracy. It's got an open elite, but it's a very elitist society. And the Senate is a way to keep the elite within the fold. It's a way to keep the elite from around the empire within the fold. So I think it, it basically serves a very useful role for the emperors, even if over time it becomes less powerful and the action switches to elsewhere. Beyond the lessons in leadership, which I know you've talked about, we've talked about before, what are some of the common threads in all of this that are so relevant today? Well, I think to me the most relevant lesson, the most common thread is that change is inevitable. And key to being a successful country is to make change your friend. We can't stop change from happening. It's going to happen. And the question is, how can you manage change? To me, the motto of the Roman Empire comes from um, one of my favorite Italian novels, uh, The Leopard, um, in the, the model lesson, which is about revolution in Sicily in the 19th century. And the motto is, if we want things to stay the same, everything has to change. I think we could apply that to the Roman emperors. I think they were people who knew that if they wanted Rome to still be Rome, they had to be willing to accept huge changes, changes they couldn't always control, but they had to learn to manage them, to channel them. And that's, that's why the Roman Empire, in my opinion, lasted as long as it did. And talk about the resistance to change and how that manifested itself and what we can see in that, what we can learn from that. <laughs> Well, I mean, the resistance to change, is, you, one example is the, uh, the cultural elite, uh, which sneers about the presence of foreigners in Rome. Uh, there's a famous poem that says, uh, the river Tiber, the river Rome, now has the river Orontes flowing into it. The Orontes is the river of Antioch in Syria. As if it were a terrible thing that there were all these uh, Greeks in Rome, uh, Trajan looked down on Hadrian um, for being too Greek, too friendly to uh, to the Greeks, uh, and of course there was huge resistance to Christianity as it made inroads to in the Roman Empire. Uh, the Emperor Diocletian, uh, the emperor before Constantine, uh, inaugurates the greatest persecution that the Christian Church ever faced. Um, and then Constantine comes along after him and says, no, actually, we're not going to persecute the Christians. We're going to tolerate the Christians and promote Christianity. So there's, there's a certain amount of religious conservatism um, in the Roman world, a certain amount of unwillingness to, to accept that kind of change. So those would be two examples of, of change. And as I said, well, there's also... Um, Earlier on, another example is some of the emperors are using 
ex-slaves, freedmen, who almost always come from the Greek world, to, uh, they're using them essentially as their great secretaries of state and ministers. They are staffing all the government agencies. And there's huge opposition to this on the part of the traditional Roman nobility that looks down on these people. And yet these are the people who are able to cope with what the empire is becoming and who are able to administer it. The, the traditional nobility is not. When you look at these leaders through this rearview mirror, are there clear signs of those decisions that were made or those leaders that really led to the end? Well, uh, you know, the end, yes. Uh, When we talk about the end, we're usually talking about the end of the Roman Empire in the West, uh, because the Roman Empire in the East lasts until 1453, so a thousand years after the fall in the West and the fall of Constantinople. So I think a couple of things. Like One decision is the decision to divide the empire. That I think it's inevitable. There's just too many threats, military threats, facing the empire for any one man to rule it. And I think the buildup of the Eastern Empire diverted resources from the Western Empire. I think that is a key thing. Another key thing is simply that the the Western Empire indulges bad leaders for a long period in the late 4th and 5th centuries AD, in periods when it could not, it didn't really have the luxury of domestic disarray and domestic dispute, when it should have been united in defending the frontiers. It was utterly divided and allowed its defenses to go down. So I think that's that's part of it as well. Um, a lot of the energy also came from the East. I mean, thing one thing that we can see is, I don't know that this is so much a decision as inevitability. Um, what happened to Rome is something that's happened to many societies in history. Is it's a victim of its own success. As Italy became the mistress of this great empire, then Italians, both noble Italians and ordinary Italians, became quite wealthy and they settled down to enjoy the fruits of peace. They were no longer interested in being soldiers. They were no longer interested in defending the empire. Um, And so increasingly, the people who do have those jobs come from elsewhere. They're not Italian. Some of them are Germans. Some of them come from the Balkans. They're frankly more interested in the Eastern world. I think the Italians paid a heavy price for not. for not maintaining the burden of their own defense. Are you surprised sometimes, Barry, and you've been studying this and writing about it for so long, are you surprised at the contemporary nature of so much of this? <laughs> um, I'm surprised at the degree, yes and no, I'm surprised at the, the degree to which there are new lessons to find and to how, again and again, I'm reminded of the old saying that every generation rewrites history for a to, to highlight what it's interested in. I think that's that's absolutely true. But I'm not really surprised that there's contemporary uh, relevance and echoes because I think um, human beings haven't changed. I think we're fundamentally similar. And so you see, you see some of the same patterns again and again in human history. I think um, the, 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 the hard thing, the important thing is to learn from the past uh, and to try to avoid its mistakes in the present. Barry Strauss, his book is Ten Caesars, Roman Emperors from Augustus to Constantine. Barry, it's always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. The pleasure was mine. Thank you.